from Brooklyn, New York. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vampire Podcast. And yeah, we're still we're still remote. It's still uh early days here. Yeah. <laughs> early days, late days. Who knows? Maybe, hopefully knows. End days. I'm hoping we're I'm hoping we're towards the towards the end of days. Not like that, you know. <laughs> like. <laughs> Very different tone for a podcast than usual. Yeah. It's the end times. Mm-hmm. Adam, um, what will you drink after uh, you know, after Armageddon? Oh, after Armageddon? I don't know. <laughs> oh, this is actually okay, so this is a silly topic, but what a good time for it. So I was having a conversation with Caitlin the other day about like what do you do if in, in the sort of like Armageddon-esque scenario where like an asteroid's going to destroy the earth unless, I don't know, Bruce Willis yeah, and Ben Affleck are otherwise available. Yeah. Uh, and like, um, not in a like, what do you do? Well, I mean, maybe in, we talked about a lot of things, but I was like, what do you drink? And I was like, this is a fascinating question to me because I feel like it's sort of connected to the like ubiquitous, what would your last meal thing be? Yeah. Or like, uh, you know, Tim um, McCurdy likes to ask on cocktail college people, like if they knew it was their last drink, what would they have? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of have been grappling with this. Like, do you just go for something that's like super high proof and just like knock yourself out, uh, out and hope that, you know, <laughs> you just never have to face the, I don't know, uh, Aerosmith song that plays over earth's destruction or something mm-hmm. or, um, or what? I don't know. I, it's I, an old I, reference there. Zach is an old reference. <laughs> um, I mean, we're old people, Adam. I don't want to tell you. Uh, I, is there no, a more modern for yourself. world is destroyed? Um, uh, is there a more modern world is completely destroyed? threat movie probably but. yeah don't look up yeah. joanna oh, okay, just just name checked it <laughs> <laughs> haven't um, gotten around to that one yet yeah it's good it's funny um it didn't get a lot of, you know it's interesting really like the, you know the critics like didn't like it but i found it quite funny joanna did you watch it yes i i watched it i liked it a lot yeah i found it quite enjoyable i'm mm-hmm. uh yeah i don't really understand why the critics didn't like it anyways we'll see it depends on what kind of apocalypse you're talking about because like oh, if it's point. You know, if this is a zombie apocalypse, mm. then do you drink zombies? Yeah, Just like to dip it on the <laughs> then I feel like I'm really like I feel like I want something that can also be a weapon later. So, like, I kind of think I want to saber a bottle of champagne, chug <laughs> it, and then I have the saber and yeah, the yeah, bottle, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's like, let's go. Uh-huh. You know, whereas it's like an asteroid hurtling towards Earth, and it's like there's nothing we can do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe just like the nicest Barolo I have lying around or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I'd go for qu- quality over quantity here. Yeah. Or proof, Zach. But I do like Adam's idea. See, in the zombie apocalypse, in addition to like the notion of having a weapon that you could use, I also think like you need like a Red Bull vodka, right? Like you need a little <laughs> bit of booze, but you also need some energy, like just in case, right? Mm-hmm. In case you got to run or fight or whatever. So I feel like. You know, that's that's kind of where I'm going. But yeah, in the case of like, yeah, asteroid impact with Earth. <sighs> yeah, I guess you're probably just you're just looking for for the finest thing down in the cellar. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you're drinking. Yeah, right. Like, it's just like, like, it's just it's got to be what it's got to be. Right. Like, I don't know how else you. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what else it would be. Uh, but anyways, well, luckily, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So what did you guys drink this last week <laughs> instead? Uh Joanna. Um, so I haven't been drinking a ton, but I over the holidays I was in Canada for a little while with um, Evan's family, and I had a number of um, interesting Ontario beers. Ooh. So we had some okay. beer from Rouge River, from Side Launch Brewing Company, and uh, Waterloo Brewing Company as well. Mostly hazy IPAs, um, mm. but I like to try out different beers when I'm there. All the rage now. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's pretty much it. I've been drinking a lot of um, non-alcoholic beer since we last chatted, actually. Wait, really? Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just getting through that athletic. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> You're like, it's here. I might as well drink it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pretty much. <laughs> what about you, Zach? Well, I have had a one or two NA beers since we uh, last chatted as well, um, mm -hmm. because as as mentioned, not only are they in the house, but like you know. It is meaningfully, and I think as we said on that episode, like it's something that I can drink that feels like an adult beverage without without being boozy. Um, I mean, in all honesty, this is gonna this might anger Adam even more than some of the things I say on this podcast because mm, he hates it whenever I bring this up. But the other thing I've been drinking a lot of is tea, which I really only drink oh, in January, um, with like a, with like a few exceptions. But like, Adam, do you hate tea? <laughs> No, just like you know, it's not a tea podcast. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's not a it's not a TV show podcast either. Either, but you bring them up every episode. Mm -hmm. Well, but uh, I mean, I think it's because you know it's my right, and, uh, <laughs> and you, you know, you know, you're you're the beverage professional here on the on the on the show. Yeah, tea is and, a beverage. Uh, in case you uh, in case you yeah, weren't aware, I guess whatever. But just it's, I, in any case, anyways, I won't dirty go, water. I, uh, well, I mean, so is coffee, but that doesn't stop us. Coffee's still um, delicious. Continue. Yeah. In any case, I, I like I drink a lot of coffee. That's a year round thing for me. But but I do kind of get more into tea in uh, in January typically because mm. it, it the thing I like about it that I think is a little bit different than than coffee in my experience is like tea does this one thing that that I miss in especially in wine um, when I'm not drinking, which is like it does kind of change in the mug a little bit over time. So like when you first sip it, some of that's temperature, some of that's like tannins, um, obviously depending on when you remove the leaves or the bag or however you choose to make your tea. But like, it, it just has a complexity to it that coffee can certainly have, but completely honestly, the coffee that we have at home is like fine, but I'm not, I'm not a coffee obsessive. Um, mm. And so I, our coffee is like good, but I'm not breaking out the Chemex and like getting out my, you know, my single origin beans uh, to sort of like, play with flavor in that regard mm. and so tea to me just kind of like scratches that kind of intellectual itch that i miss with you know especially not drinking wine but but even spirits and and beer as well and so um you know i like some some different kinds of uh, black teas in the morning and then i do drink a lot of kind of herbal or you know tisans or whatever in the in the evening in mostly just in january you know some of it's also because it's fucking cold out and it's a, a comforting beverage mm -hmm. um, when i don't want caffeine so that's kind of been what i've been into how about you adam uh well so i guess prior to the you know the holiday during the holidays uh, as you guys know i was in uh, maine and uh, vermont and mm -hmm. so i got some really cool breweries went to you know Oxbow, uh, Fiddlehead, nice. um, Bellflower, which was really amazing. Bellflower Brewery in Portland. It's a newer one, and they're, they're probably my favorite hazy IPAs of the trip. Mm -hmm. um, Oxbow, obviously, really amazing saisons. Um, so that was super cool and fun. Um, and then on New Year's Eve, I popped a really amazing at Neroso from Planeta that was like a mm – -hmm a bottle I've been saving that we brought on the trip and it was a Magnum and that was a lot of fun. Nice. Uh, but yeah. Then since, since then, you know, it's not, I, I, you know, I got, I got a, I'm only drinking on the weekends. So haven't had like a bunch of really adventurous stuff yet, mm -hmm. but you know, we'll, uh, we'll report back. We'll report back, you know, as we, as, as this, as this month goes on, who knows, maybe my only Monday, my only Friday and Saturdays will we'll move to Thursday, Friday and Saturdays uh, <laughs> with, with, with how things are going, but who knows? Who knows? 
Uh, so Jenny, you want to set, you want to set up for us up for uh, today's topic? Yes. So today we're talking about something that I find really interesting in the mm. world of drinks. Um, we're talking about sweetness. And um, what I wanted to ask or talk about is why the drinks world hates sweetness so much. <laughs> or, why, or why, I guess this is a better way to say it. Why is sweetness such a complex topic in the drinks world specifically? Um, I think, you know, I, I've heard countless times that Americans have a very sweet palate, sweet yes. drinks palate. And yet most conversations I have around sweet, sweeter beverages, sweet wines, you know, sweet cocktails, anything like that. Uh, you know, people in the drinks industry specifically kind of turn their nose noses up at, at those drinks. So I wanted to talk to you two about it because I'm kind of I'm confused. It's a little perplexing to me. What uh, what do you guys think? I mean, I think I think we have a lot of issues with sweetness. So again, I think it's it's, it's a really interesting topic because you know it, it definitely is something that the beverage the professional beverage world struggles with i think mm-hmm. uh, across all areas and yet some of the most popular styles of drinks in all areas of beverage whether that's you know non-alcoholic or alcoholic and then when we speak spirits beer and wine have some sort of sweetness to them mm-hmm. i think that but for beverage professionals a lot of people be- believe or have believed right sweetness equals sort of not complex. Mm-hmm. It, it sort of is like, oh, you just like it because it's sweet. Like you might as well be eating a candy bar. You might as well drinking a, be drinking a Coke. And so therefore it people aren't, you know, willing to try to understand why someone might like something that is – that tastes sweet. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could argue that certain hazy IPAs have a sweetness to them. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of like juicy, sweet, you know, orange-ish flavor that is what has now finally made IPAs even more popular than they were before. Um, you know, but then I think it's so interesting because the beverage world then embraces tiki cocktails, which are extremely sweet. Right. And, you know, dessert wines like Sauternes, which are extremely sweet um, and certain styles of Rieslings. And so – it's it's a really weird it's like it's really weird because it's it's almost anti-sweetness when it comes to a way to to go against styles of beverage you just would never drink anyways right mm-hmm. so it's like it's like well i don't i don't like sweetness but only that kind of sweetness mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's i think what makes it so hard to understand for yeah. most people looking at the cat at the beverage world because it's like wait this doesn't make any sense. Like sugar, sugar, right? <laughs> like sweet is sweet. So why are you telling me that a Sauternes is like incredibly complex, but like, you know, I'm not supposed to be allowed to like, I don't know, a, a big red wine with residual sugar. Yeah. Like maybe, you know, I don't know, maybe an Amarone or, you know, well, a, I think like, or like a, a grocery store red blend or something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah I think there's something about like, you seem more refined if you say like your your palate is more refined if you say you don't drink sweet drinks yeah or you like dry drinks only so interesting let me add a couple of thoughts to this topic here so one thing i think is that we as a sort of you know 21st century americans 
are awash in sweet things. Like sweetness is not something that we have to struggle to find. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for most of human history, that wasn't true. There's a reason why biologically we respond so strongly to sweet things, um, you know, whether it's food, drink, otherwise. Right. And, and that's just a, like sweetness in, in nature is relatively rare and seasonal and it's, and it's a treat. And, and so there's a way in which like our eight brains and eight, you know, whatever taste buds can't really like grapple with abundant sweetness sanely because we kind of are like obsessed with sweetness um, and fat too. And obviously in both those categories, like we now have access to those things whenever we want in a way that just did not used to be true in human history. And so there's, there's obviously been a backlash to that or a pushback against that in diet culture and things like that, mm-hmm. where sugar is the enemy. And, and it's not to, I don't want to weigh in on the merits there, particularly, I think there's, you know, like everything there's, there's some good and some bad, but it's undeniably true that, um, you know, I think from, since the time we were children onward, Sweetness has has become, you know, sort of at best uh, something that's viewed with suspicion, if not outright vilified, mm-hmm. yeah. kind of throughout all of consumables. And that's not a beverage uh, specific thing or even beverage alcohol specific thing. On top of that, you have this complex thing in beverage alcohol where many of the things that were popular 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago were in part popular because they were sweet. I mean, I know Keith Beavers likes to talk about this a lot that, you know, only relatively recently has the American palate, even in terms of just what people buy, switched from preferring sweet wine to um, to dry wine. Mm-hmm. And there are right. still tons of people who like sweet wine. We've experienced this, whether we were drinking, you know, the uh, 19 Primes Cali Red or mm-hmm. Franzia or whatever, right? Like sweetness still sells. Those are huge brands, right? And there's a huge swath of the public that likes those wines. And part of the reason they like them is because they are sweet, undeniably. Mm-hmm. But I think that sweetness came to be viewed with suspicion and as a shortcut or as a way to kind of you know, generate interest sales, um, you know, kind of get people excited about your product. And in some of those cases, you know, the sweetness was being come to either through outright sugar additions or, you know, adding uh, concentrated grape must or things like that, that are, that aren't really, you know, feel like cheats to, to certain people. Um, and again, I'm not, again, weigh in on that particularly. We're not really talking about that. I think the last thing I will say though, is that, we also struggle in beverage alcohol to to talk about sweetness. And, and some of it is a thing that you and I discussed way back when on the podcast, when we did an episode, um, I think called like, you know, kill these words or kill these mm-hmm. terms. Yeah. And I find the term dry to be such an such an um, obstacle to, to talking about sweetness in uh, beverages because dry and sweet do not seem like natural opposites right mm-hmm. you know in in our yeah. usage of those words otherwise you know you would not think of dry and sweet as being opposites it's only in beverage alc that we use those and really mostly in just in wine and to some extent spirits and the problem with that is that a consumer can say they like dry wines and also but mean they want a tannic wine that's sweet and it's very confusing they get told they're wrong or they get told they don't understand what they're talking about either directly or or sort of it's implied and they sort of turn away from the category. And so I think that there is a language problem here for sure. But mm-hmm. there is this sort of broader cultural trend away from from sweetness in all its forms. And I think the sad thing about that is there is a big difference between soda, you know, a, a soda uh, made right. by you know whomever, and the the sweetness that you get in a Trokenbier and Auschleser Riesling or Sautern or whatever mm-hmm. dessert wine you want to pick. And, how, and in part, it's just how you arrive at that level of sweetness is so different, mm-hmm. you know, and and what 
sommeliers and others have tried to explain often not very well is that part of the beauty of these sweet wines, these sort of these world, these world famous sweet wines is that they are precious because they are so difficult to make and they Mm -hmm. are so, you know, and, and their, and their very existence is sort of tenuous because the market for them is small and possibly shrinking or at least not really growing. And yet they represent this incredible part of, of wine's history of our history as a, as a drinking species, because for so long, the most prized wines that you could find were sweet wines because, you know, sweetness was so prized and making a sweet wine was a way of preserving this natural occurring sugar in grapes in a way that lasted for years, for decades, for centuries. And that was a thing that was so prized. And we, it's not to criticize people for not caring about that now. I mean, who the fuck cares, right? It's not, we don't face the same reality that people in the 1500s faced, but there is a reason why these things have been so lauded throughout history. And it's not just their ability to preserve sugar. Um, it is their complexity and their uniqueness, but, but part of it is just understanding why they were so popular historically and maybe treating them with a little bit of deference given that fact. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I do think that that that's an interesting point in terms of like why there is a a sort of acceptance of those sweet wines and and not the others or or acceptance of of those sweet alcohols. I think what's interesting to me though is is more in the in the spirit spaces mm-hmm. or in the in the beer spaces because I think there you can't make that argument as easily. Like tiki is not a super old area of drink, right? Mm-hmm. It is much newer, and there's lots of sugar in tiki. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's lots of sugar in other co- like the espresso martini is like one of the most. It was one of the trendiest cocktails now back on the on on the come up, right? And it's mm-hmm. super sweet. You know, I mean, I had one actually that was undrinkable almost. Uh, it was my first espresso martini in a very long time uh, two weeks ago, and it was like totally undrinkable because of how sweet it was to me. Um, mm-hmm. you know, but to other people, it might've been amazing, right? Like, it's just a, that's what people like. And that's sort of what the cocktail is supposed to be. There's all these really kind of sweet beers that have come out, mm-hmm. you know, these smoothie IPAs and using, you know, pumpkin beer. Pu- yeah. And pumpkin beer and you know, everything using sort of lack, you know, what the is it? The, all the stuff yeah. that's like with, with the, like lactose the lactic, that, yeah. lactose. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Right. So, and those I think are going for that same market of sweet but then they would not drink other th- and so i almost wonder if sometimes sweetness does come down to as as you said a little bit earlier it's like this this dividing line we think between like craft or whatever and mass production mm-hmm. that like we believe you know that I, I i agree that a lot of people don't want to feel like they're only drinking especially if you're working in beverage right or you're working in food right you you want to support the people who care about the craft, you want to support, mm-hmm. you don't want to support mass production, right? It's funny mm-hmm. before we were jumping on this podcast. I, there's a, like a, a, a person I really love on Instagram. His name's New York Nico. Mm-hmm. And he like goes all, all, to all these really cool places. And anyways, he's become friends with this guy named Niels by Chug. Mm-hmm. And I quickly watched this video. They're like reviewing a, the subway meatball parm. And they're, and basically what they're saying is like, why would you, you live in New York city. Like, why would you ever go to subway to get a meatball parm? Right. Like there's so, and, and I think that's a good example of, you know, a lot of people who say, who work in beverage, like, why would you ever drink this kind of wine? There's some people who like toil over this, right. Mm -hmm. That, and sweet. So anyways, my, my long way to make this point is 
I think sweetness becomes a very easy way to sort of categorize that without just saying it's a mass mass production, mm-hmm. right? Because a lot of the mass production stuff does use lots of sugar well, because sure. sugar is much more appealing. It's why things take off. And that's in the spirits world too, right? We see mm-hmm. a lot of the massive vodkas and tequilas use sugar. You know, I mean, one of the number one tequilas in the world now is has tons of sugar in that. It's Casamigos, right? Like it's a yeah. big mass produced tequila that everyone knows is is adding sugar additives to make it even more popular than it already is. Um, and so I wonder if that's almost where how sweetness has gotten such a bad rap. Mm-hmm. Is it gotten that bad rap because it's come to it's become identified with so many big mass produced brands yeah. that it's just an easy way to be like, don't drink sweet stuff. Well, Joanna, I'm curious because of your experience in in food media. Mm-hmm. I mean, my my assumption assumption is that like we associate processed foods with sugar and and other things mm-hmm. too, of course. But but yeah. that that in food media, I would imagine, well, there's obviously a certain reverence for you know desserts and other chocolates, et cetera, things that are obviously very sweet. There is a a, a healthy skepticism of, if not outright dismissal, of sort of processed food as a category. Is that right? Yeah, I think, you know, I've had this conversation with Adam before. I think that's definitely true. But then we also saw more recently this movement back towards processed foods and treats, right? Like you see dessert chefs, very popular dessert chefs, kind of reclaiming those types of foods and that that type of processed sweetness to kind of I don't know if there's like a wink yeah. towards it or something, but like coming back to, you know, the Twinkies and the, uh, I don't the know, whoopie pies and, the, and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. But, but do you mean stuff. like sort of their, their highbrow takes on those things or literally using a Twinkie in their dessert? H- highbrow takes okay. on those things. Highbrow, but a lot of them are using still, not all of them, but some of them are using like the high fructose corn syrup and yep, stuff and yep. flavorings. Yeah. Like they really are. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, so I think it's it's interesting because it's not just, hey, let me make this dessert, but I'm going to use maple syrup or something instead of corn syrup. They are using corn syrup, mm-hmm. but they're still making it highbrow. I mean, I mean, I mean, the one that Joanna and I talked about the most is Milk Bar. I mean, Milk mm-hmm. Bar is one of the best examples of this. Like right. all of those desserts are takes on like grocery store aisle cake, you know, cake batter mixes and desserts and Christina Tossi is using a lot of those same sugars and things like that. It just is branded much better. <laughs> yeah, I think. I mean, I think she found ex- such extreme success with it because when she was first doing it, when she was a pastry chef at Momofuku, like it was, it it, it felt like kind of counterculture, right? Like you have fine dining and you would never ever see something like that on a plate at the end of like a three hundred dollar meal. Yeah. But then she was doing something like this and it felt so different and so like fresh kind of to have this uh, perspective on fine dining desserts. And it just kind of launched this whole career out of it. Um, But yeah, I I don't know to bring this back to (laughs) to bring this back to drinks. Maybe I don't know if you guys remember this, but uh, maybe a couple of five or 10 years ago, there was uh, like a cocktail bar in New York City. And I can't remember the name of it, but they used they would put like full cans of like fr- they build their cocktails in like Fresca can. Hmm. Remember this? Oh, I know um, what you're talking about too. Yeah, but I, I can't remember the name, but I know what you're talking about. Right. And it was supposed to be like a cool cocktail bar. And that was kind of their shtick was building it out of soda cans where they would put the, build the cocktail in it. Um, anyway, so I, I think it's like coming back to, we were talking about soda before, like 
such a no-no, nobody wants, you shouldn't be drinking soda. And, and Zach, just in your discussing of like sweetness and how we as a society have responded to it. And I, I think a lot of this is like really wrapped up in diet culture and yep. the revolt against big soda and stuff like that. Because the reason why I don't drink sweet drinks or know not to drink sweet drinks is because my mom never drank sweet drinks. Mm-hmm. And that was because she was like, no, I drink dry white wine, like would never drink a sweet wine, would never have a sweet cocktail, only drinks like the driest martini. Um, and that was something that was so instilled in me just even from growing up. And I think that mm-hmm. that's why I find this topic so complex because it's so tied up in these other social social issues, like cultural issues. Yeah, yeah well, and, it's so interesting. And I think I should, I want to elaborate a little bit on, on something there too, because I think it's important is that in in the drink space, I think sweetness suffers from from these two elements. There's the one that we were just that you just mentioned, Joanna, that the the sort of connection or or sort of parallel to diet culture, where people are you know as we've talked about you know even just very recently about just like people are looking for no ABV, low ABV cocktails for mm-hmm. sort of ostensibly health reasons because they're lower cal, etc. Um, you know, sugar and, or sweeteners in in beverage are a, a, often for a lot of people a sort of hidden source of calories, right? And if you're trying to be conscious of that, then you're going to, you know, seek out styles that you think are, you know, that are as low cal as you can, whatever, whether mm-hmm. that's the skinny girl margarita or whatever, right? And at the same time, I think there's also this other piece that I, I think we alluded to, but I want to hammer home, which is that sweetness has been treated in some of the drinks media as code for simple or pedestrian mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. You know, sort of beneath. Um, and that is the part where I find it a little more, let's say a little more difficult to grapple with, because I think that there is, you know, beverage alcohol across most of its categories struggles a lot with this notion of like, how do you talk about quality when, or, or sort of premiumization even when so many of these things are intensely personal and personal taste is hugely important. And so Mm -hmm. someone whose personal tastes in beer, wine, spirits, cocktails, whatever, skews towards sweeter, suffers the real risk of being taken as completely unserious by a lot of drinks professionals. Um, And I remember one of the most instructive moments in my sommelier career was I had a a person come into to the restaurant who, you know, I was trying, wanted to get some wine and they said, you know, I asked, you know, well, what do you typically like to drink? And they said, you know, my favorite thing is Moscato. And I said, oh, great. Like we have some Moscato or, you know, here are some other things that we can talk about. And and after, you know, we got them a glass of Moscato and then we found um, a bottle of sort of an off dry Chenin Blanc that they were interested in that they had with the people they were dining with. And at the end of the meal, they said like, you know, I really appreciate you actually taking my, like, you know, I, I know that a lot of times when I tell people like Moscato, they're just like, Oh, okay, great. You know, here's the sweetest wine we have. Mm -hmm. I don't even, I don't have anything to talk to you about, or they try and bring me port or something sweet, even though like Moscato and port have only sweetness in common and and nothing else. And they were very appreciative of being sort of taken seriously as a wine drinker, even if their preferences are not necessarily aligned with what many people would consider kind of the most serious wines. And it was instructive to me. And and it's something I tried, I've tried to keep in mind is like, a person can like sweet drinks and be an incredibly astute, serious drinker and want to be taken seriously. And the beverage world doesn't always speak very well to those people. Mm-hmm. That's very true. I, 
I, I kind of, um, I, you know, I've recently encountered a few people who are like brave enough to admit that they have a sweet tooth. And I find that very refreshing. Well, that's actually a great point, too, because like we also tend to treat people who like we, we treat liking sweet things as something, you know, it's kind of like a character flaw. Right. Mm-hmm. We treat it as like, oh, you're you know, you don't have much willpower if you if you like sweet things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously everyone has their own different preferences. And it's not to say that in this era of ubiquitous, ubiquitous sugar, it, it does take some willpower to resist. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, whether it's, you know, in whether it's dessert or drinks or wherever you're, you know, your or what you put in your coffee or whatever, right? Like there's a lot of avenues to sweetness in mm-hmm. modern society that are very easy and, and, you know, to some extent do require some willpower in one way or another for most of us. But I think that, yeah, it's, it's, that's a good point that there's, there's a, a kind of virtue signaling also in saying that you drink dry drinks only, right? You're mm-hmm. saying I am, I, I, I am both, you know, sort of this adult sophisticate, but also like I'm not weak-willed, and that yeah. that part I find like there's no reason you shouldn't enjoy indulging in a espresso martini or a mojito or a you know a glass of moscato or whatever, right? Like those are you know those those are not less worthy indulgences than the ones that the person who never drinks a sweet thing in their in their life indulges mm-hmm. in. They just might be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think it's interesting. Like this is totally anecdotal but i do feel like most people you know they they do as as human beings we we crave something some sort of sweetness whether that is via the beverages we consume or whether lots of people who i know who don't drink are big dessert eaters mm-hmm. right like i find myself to not be someone who really like craves cookies and cakes and candies but i'm a drinker and people I know who don't drink as much really crave cookies and cakes and candy. Mm-hmm. I think you know, there's just something about how we've evolved as human beings that we we have sweet – like there is something that we crave in sweetness. And I'm even saying that as someone who – I'll sit here and say, oh, I only drink dry wine. But I mean all wine has sweetness. Mm-hmm. Like all – like most cocktails have sweetness. Bourbons have sweetness. So you know, your body is, is getting that sugar that your brain is looking for. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so that's why I also think it's really it's just also interesting. Like you know, sugar is something that when we see what it does with little kids. It makes you cray cray, um, mm-hmm. and it makes you crave it again. It's just it's something that is some it's crave worthy. It's like it just yeah. is, and so you know it's a it's a hard thing to then sit there and say like, well, I don't do anything that's sweet, and you shouldn't <laughs> either, because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. all of us are consuming something that's sweet. And you know what? I want to amend my answer from the beginning of this episode. If the asteroid's coming, I'm cracking open my <laughs> nicest bottle of dessert wine. I'm getting a pint of ice cream, and I'm going out like that. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. That's well, uh, well, that's the best. We're going to end it there then, Joanna and Zach. I'll talk to you on Friday. See you then. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.